Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. So good morning, church. Uh, if you haven't met me before, my name's Alistair. Um, I've been coming to this church for uh, a period of time that I believe is technically called Donkey's Years, and I have the great privilege of giving our message today. So we're in a series going through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Um, and so we, we've been in this series for a number of months, and I love the way that we as a church have started digging really, really deeply into sections of the Bible and just just chipping away at them to learn really deeply what God has to say in those. And so we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a while, and we come to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. This is some of the most recognizable words in the whole Sermon on the Mount. So um, coming to these verses, I thought, wow, these are words that everybody knows and everyone's heard a million times. So like the kind of the gut instinct was to worry maybe there's not going to be that much that I can expand on because we've all heard these words so many times. But thank goodness for me, I find so often it's in the parts of Scripture that we know the best, that we're the most familiar with, that we have forgotten to stop and look more deeply. Um, So I think there's actually heaps and heaps for us to unpack today. Um, So I'm really excited to go through that with you guys. I'll try to make sure I structure it kind of clearly. So if you want to take notes, I'll I'll try to give headings, that sort of thing. Um, And I will ask as I go along, like, did that make sense or something like that? And feel free to tell me no, if it didn't, um, because I want to know. I want to get it right. Um, So the verses that I have today is Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So that last little bit actually is added later on in the Christian tradition when we sang, when we prayed the Lord's Prayer. And in Jesus, when Jesus first taught us, it ends there, but deliver us from the evil one. So I'm going to do three separate points on this. Firstly, I'm going to start with the context. So, um, you know, there's heaps and heaps to unpack in just these like four verses. So naturally, I'm making it harder for myself, and I'm going to start with the previous four verses as well, because we need to understand the context. So that'll be point number one. And then we'll unpack the beginning of the prayer and how Jesus is teaching us to enter into praying. That'll be point number two. And if I do it right, that'll take us less than the first half. And then for point number three, we're going to go line by line and unpack the way that Jesus is praying and what that can teach us about the way that we should be encouraged to pray. So point number one is the context of what it means when Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. See, the the preceding four verses that um, Doug preached on uh, last week, um, they also have to do with prayer. And they actually have to do with Jesus saying, this is the way that people pray now. Don't do it like that. And here's why. So my point number one, if you're taking notes, is not like the Pharisees, not like the pagans. So I'm going to start, I'm just going to quickly whiz through 
verses 5 to 8, which set the scene. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So uh, Doug... um, Dug, dug really deep into this, that tripped me up, uh, last week. And it was a really, um, really awesome message. I encourage you, very challenging. Um, but I'm going to come at it from a bit of a different perspective, just examining the instruction around praying. Not like the Pharisees. Number one, don't pray so that people will see you praying. So the, the, the pattern, the behavior that the Pharisees showed, remember the Pharisees were this sect of people who basically followed the law better than everyone else. And they were seen as the most holy, the most righteous people. No one liked them, but that's okay. They still also were held as like the highest standard. And so when Jesus is teaching people to pray, he's going, you see that highest standard over there? Uh-uh, don't do that. Because the Pharisees would find the most public place they could. And then when the time came for prayer, they would pray loudly and extravagantly so that everyone could see them and everyone would know that they were praying. I'm sure they had some justification that that was like setting an example and trying to make people, people feel guilty and so they would pray more. I'm sure they had a reason, but the reality of their hearts, as Jesus said, is that they weren't praying for God's approval. They were praying for the approval of the people who saw them pray. And so Jesus actually said they've already had their reward. As in the prayers that they're praying, they're not getting anything out of it anymore because they've already had people see them and that's all they can have. (laughs) Thank you very much. And so he's saying when we pray, when we come before him, don't make it a performance. And that can be, it's a little bit less of a thing nowadays in in our, our community, thankfully, but... There are certainly times when we're tempted to pray or even to like do other parts of our, our Christian walk in a way that ends up being kind of performative. So I know for me, I love words, I love speaking, and I love putting things in the right way. And so when I pray on stage, and even when I pray in like uh, prayer groups at church, I have a temptation to be focused on making sure my words are eloquent and that other people hear something encouraging and that sounds really tasty when I pray. And so I'm encouraged and reminded that when I pray as best I can, forget about everyone around me. That doesn't mean do something so extravagant and distracting that no one else can pray because I'm wailing and flailing my limbs. But it means set our heart on God when we pray, not on other people. Number one, not like the Pharisees, not like the pagans. Now, the second one, not like the pagans, I think is actually more subtle and pervasive. When you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, I don't know a huge amount about the context of prayer in the various pagan religions that were around at the time, but from what I've, I've read and from what I understand, when you prayed to the temple of Zeus or, or Aphrodite or whatever, or one of the many other religions around, the, the, the context of that was that here's your ritual, here's steps A through D, and you come, you do them, you kill the chicken, you, you know, wipe the blood, you pray these words, and then you will receive the blessing of that God. 
And in some traditions, and this is why Jesus actually kind of, this is one of two words in this section that are completely made up. He's kind of doing a Shakespeare here. He's a word that exists nowhere else in the Greek literature of the time. The word that we translate as uh, babbling, and other, other translations say empty words that don't mean anything to them. Um, and so they would sometimes actually pl- pray literal gibberish. In fact, in, in some of my reading, um, I, I, someone was saying that there's this, uh, this manuscript that existed from around this time that literally for thousands of years, people were trying desperately to figure out what on earth the language was. And in the end, they've kind of figured out from context, they've decided actually it was never language at all. It was actually literal gibberish that was written out so people could pray it because they believed in some way that gibberish would get them in front of their God. Now, that's a bit confusing because we don't necessarily have pagan habits of prayer anymore, right? We're in a, we're in a, a society fundamentally dominated by Christianity. And so when we think about prayer, we usually think about it at least in a Christian context, if nothing else. But examine the meaning of the, the understanding behind that. Babbling with empty words that mean nothing, they think they will be heard because of their many words. And I think in our context, the temptation here is that sometimes, and I have absolutely done this. In fact, I've heard people teach to do this, not in so many words, but that was the implication. That we can pray as long as we get points A through C right in our prayer, then God will answer us. And in some way, if we fill the right checkboxes in our prayer, then look at the Bible. It says God does, will absolutely answer the prayer of a righteous man. It says God's word is, will never um, go, f- go forth and return void. It will always bear fruit. So if you stand on those and if your faith is good enough, then if you pray this way, it will happen. And unfortunately, I think that's a really incorrect way to read the Bible because it's overly simplistic. The Bible, yes, every single word is true, but that doesn't mean that you have to take the words out of their context and treat them like a legal document. It's a story. It's a book, and we have to read it as such. And so when we pray, we can be tempted to pray, okay, look, I know that I need this stuff. I'm having a bad time. I'm just going to get the words out. God will see it, and I'll get my stuff. Or sometimes we just go through the motions because, you know, we're feeling horrendous. We're, our heart's not in it. But, you know, other people are watching and so we just kind of got to pray. Got to get it out of the way. Got to get it done. And so our instruction here, not like the Pharisees, not like the pagans, we're not coming to prayer so that other people will see us do it. And we're not coming to prayer with words that really don't mean anything to us. We're not coming to prayer like we're demanding something from God. Because he already knows what we need. And that's the pivotal part. Your father in heaven already knows what you need before you ask him. We're not coming to a law court to lay a deposition to say, these are my needs, please fill them out. And then it'll come back with a revision saying, here's what you can't have, because any of that would be fun. No, we're talking to a person, a father, who already knows what we need. And so when we approach him in conversation, we're approaching someone who's already paying attention, who's as close as breathing, And so when we come, it's not those empty words about getting what I need, but it's about approaching that father in conversation. Does that make sense, guys? Awesome. So number one, not like the Pharisees or like the pagans. I'm a solid third of my way through, and we're just about to start the actual scripture. So point number two, when you pray, say. If you're taking notes, when you pray, say. So the beginning of 
Matthew chapter 9, the Lord's Prayer here is, this then is how you should pray. And what that means, as far as I understand it, is Jesus is, going, is saying, right, what will follow in light of what I've said, not like the Pharisees, not like the pagans, then this is how you should pray. And so what immediately follows that is going to be instruction. It's going to be teaching. It's going to be like a template showing us these are the things that we can learn and apply to our own prayer. And that wording to me doesn't necessarily mean pray exactly these words. And I'm familiar with that, right? I'm I'm from a, a faith tradition. I grew up in churches where we just did not pray word for word prayers. We did not pray the Lord's Prayer. We didn't pray any set prayers or anything like that. I just, I've never really prayed word for word prayers. Um, so I was comfortable with that. But in my reading, I discovered that this, the, the Lord's Prayer appears another time in the Gospels. It's slightly shortened and it's in a different context. So what that tells us, one, is that Jesus prayed like this more than once. He, this was the way he prayed all the time. But the wording in the other time is a different introduction. So it's Luke chapter 11, verses 2 to 4. I won't read the whole thing, but the introduction is the key here. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, etc. Now that is different wording. This, is, this then is how you should pray, right? A template, a broad instruction that we can then apply to our own ways. When you pray, say, that sounds like use these words, right? And like the temptation always is to try and slightly twist the Bible so it's a little more comfortable for your own tradition. And so I was really challenged by that. And thank goodness I came across it in the context of these um, you know, commentators that I was reading who were like, so yeah, it totally means that you should pray word for word prayers as well. And I was genuinely a little taken aback. I thought if you pray a set prayer with the words on the page that aren't your own words, you obviously won't mean it. It won't be real. It won't be authentic. It's not you actually coming before God. I, I thought of that, and this shows the arrogance of my own heart. I thought of Christian denominations who still do that as kind of a little backwards, but that's okay. God loves them anyway. And I, I'm afraid that's true. And I, I was challenged by this with, that Jesus himself said, when you pray, say, use these words. And I don't know, maybe that misconception was unique to me, but I was so uh, impressed by it that I wanted to make sure that I covered it today because I thought, you know, I want to tackle that misconception and, and maybe if this is something good, then I want to reclaim it. And what really sunk, in, sunk it into my mind, because it was like cognitive dissonance, like, really? Because that is totally against what I thought. But what really cemented it was understanding when I sing worship, I sing someone else's words, the same ones everyone else is singing, the same ones I've sung over and over again since that song came out and become really popular. Or maybe a hymn that we've dusted off because we're cool like that. But those aren't my words, and yet I have absolutely no moral qualm with praying them. I know with singing them. I know this is me and my community joining together, putting our soul, our heart into these words. I am singing them truly. I mean them, even though I didn't make them up. And we are coming together and singing them to our God. And that's beautiful. And yet I had never connected that dot in my brain with praying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and so on. And so really simply, I want to reclaim set prayers. 
I want to reclaim praying word for word because I have never done it really. And I've discovered actually I was missing out. Now, it doesn't mean that this is the only way we can pray because Jesus says both. This then is how you should pray. Broad instruction, pray it in your own words. And also when you pray, say, as in pray it like this. So my encouragement and the way that I have taken this on board this week is that I've started praying the Lord's Prayer sometimes. And immediately I have the danger of babbling like the pagans, right? Of just saying the words so that I can say I prayed. And that is the potential pitfall of praying set prayers. And that's kind of the reason why I thought they were naughty is because you can get trapped into babbling like the pagans, praying words that don't mean anything to you. But when we do it right, it's beautiful. I found moments in the day where I did not have time or brain space to pray the way I prefer to with 437 words a minute. What are you laughing at? But instead, I just prayed the Lord's Prayer quietly, not even out loud in my heart. Usually I try to pray out loud so I know I'm focusing. But, and, and I found not, it wasn't empty. It wasn't meaningless. It actually let me reclaim these moments where normally I would have just thought prayer's a little bit too much right now. So I prayed what Jesus had said, and it was awesome. So just to wrap up that point, I actually wanted to pay homage to one of those uh, denominations that when I was younger, I so used to look down on. I, I just, no one had ever explicitly said this, but you get the impression from the people around you. I thought Anglicans just had no idea. And then I spent three or four years attending an Anglican church and it was the most amazing teaching of the word I've ever seen. And one of the most incredible communities of young people seeking a way to live for God in community. And they sang hymns, believe it or not. It was awesome. And so there's this thing called the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. And I came across it recently when I was catching up with a, a family member, in fact, a cousin of Rosie's. And he was like, let's pray through this together. And I was like, it was like he'd asked me to pray from some other religion. And then I opened it and it was so beautiful. So I don't know the Anglican Book of Common Prayer back to front. I've not checked it. So grain of salt, if you open a prayer in there and it seems heretical, maybe. I don't know. I didn't check. But I think it's probably pretty safe. And I found this that I wanted to read us as an example. This is a way that we can pray in words that we didn't have to make up at the time. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit that in all the cares and occupations of our life we may not forget you but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Man, that's awesome. If I come up with that on the spot, I will be very pleased and probably try and get copyright. And so I just wanted to encourage us quite simply, let's reclaim that for ourselves. Maybe you're going to pray like I am the Lord's Prayer. Remember, it's not about performance. It's not performative. It's a tool that I had forgotten to pick up, that maybe we can reclaim. So point number one, not like the Pharisees, not like the pagans. Point number two, when you pray, say, or reclaiming set prayers. Now point number three, we come to the meat of it. Break it down is my point number three. And this is where I will demonstrate my breakdancing prowess. Not really. <laughs> I love that nobody thought that was actually going to happen. 
point number three, break it down. We're going to go line by line because this teaching is rich and Jesus is unpacking for us how to position our hearts in prayer and what we should be about when we are praying. So there's heaps to go through. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to unpack it. So let's dive in. Starting with verse nine, our father in heaven. So right off the bat, right, the prayer is addressing God. And there's an element of positioning our hearts correctly there, right? We're not just diving straight into our needs or whatever. I just need this thing. We're saying, who am I praying to? Heavenly Father. And actually the words, heavenly and Father, really powerful in this context. People didn't address God as Father very much, or I think at all, before Jesus. It was not a thing in the Hebrew tradition. And so when Jesus came along and started praying our father in heaven all the time, everyone was really freaked out and like, what are you talking about? And a part of that and some of the ways he prayed that was his specific, unique, one-of-a-kind relationship with God as the son of God. But other parts of it like this instruction for us was inviting us into this sonship with Jesus, as Paul puts it where we are in that level of relationship with God where we can call him dad, where we are that close, that safe, that loved, that cherished. So when we sit down, we are not coming terrified, shaking before an almighty angry cloud who's waiting to smite us if we say the wrong thing. And we're not coming demandingly before a spiritual vending machine who's just waiting to fulfill our needs. Never done that once. We're coming before a person, and not just a person with a title, but a person who, whose name is defined by our relationship with him. Father's not a title you give someone that's to do with the job they've got or something that they can earn. Father is a relationship. It's either the person who is your biological father or the person who has stepped up in your life and started filling that role of the biological father in such an amazing way. Or maybe it's just someone who is so full of love and support and wisdom that you look up to them in that way. But the title is about relationship. It's not about something necessarily inherent to the person. It's about their relationship to you. And so as we come before God, we proclaim, I am your child, father in heaven. We address him by his relationship to us, our father in heaven. And the in heaven is not by mistake either because in heaven is an indication. It's a, it's a, a, a signpost of his position of power, authority and strength. That he is seated in the ultimate place of power in heaven. Our father in heaven, both beautifully close and relational and also completely almighty and all powerful. We position our hearts as we dive into prayer in that relationship to the Almighty One. Does that make sense? Brilliant. Thanks, Simon. So, point number two of this. I'm getting into subpoints. No, that's confusing. Verse nine, hallowed be your name. So the word hallowed is a bit of a tricky one because we just don't use it in modern English very much at all. But what it kind of means is to make holy. So to take something and make it holy. So if, if I were to say, call this the spirit drink bottle, because I was given it 20 minutes ago by Nicolene, and it was very spiritual of her to have it for me. And so if I called it the spirit drink bottle and we made sure every preacher who came had the spirit drink bottle, 
and we always refilled it with special blessed water and nobody got to touch it except for special blessed people. Eventually, at a certain point, we would say that is the holy spiritual water bottle. And in that way, we have hallowed it. Not really. That would be fake. But that's the idea, that you take something and make it holy. You set it apart and you treat it like it's special and in so doing, it becomes a special thing. Now, hallowing God's name is a little confusing in that context because his name's already holy. So that's where we come to the second way that that can be used. To hallow something can be to take something that is already holy and treat it appropriately. So to hallow God's name is to see his name is holy and therefore adjust our actions, our behavior, our treatment of that name, our treatment of God himself to align with his holiness. So it's basically discovering this is the holy spiritual water bottle and now I must start being careful and not put it in the dishwasher so it doesn't get crushed. Does that make sense? We hallow his name, we come before him and we proclaim, you are incredible, amazing, beautiful and holy. May your name, may your reputation, may your person be treated as such in me, in my community, in my society around me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to treat your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm treating that as one line. So kingdom is a very big topic to cover. So I, I, I genuinely cannot get too deep into it today. But the, the idea of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God comes up again and again, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. So I encourage you, I have learned heaps from this series we've been through. So if you're new to the church or if, like me, you've missed a few services here and there, I encourage you to catch up on, this, on the podcast. Full disclosure, I still have a few to catch up on. Um, so there's some really amazing teaching about the kingdom of heaven in there. And it's one of the most important concepts in the New Testament. So if that is a little confusing to you, I will try to clarify it. But I also encourage you to dive in to either some independent research or to listening to some of the podcasts. Because the kingdom of heaven is absolutely pivotal to our understanding of Christian life. But basically, the word kingdom nowadays, we mean the geographical place ruled over by a king. Right? So the United Kingdom is the islands that are ruled over by the queen, who is the female version of the king. So nowadays, that's how we use that word, but it used to be broader. It didn't just used to mean the land itself. It meant the area of influence of that person. So it's kind of like the way we would use the word like prime ministership or presidency. So if someone's in charge of a country, the things that that country does, the laws that are made, the policies that are enacted, we'd say those are hallmarks or signs or actions of that person's presidency or that person's prime ministership. We don't call the country their prime ministership, even though it kind of is. But it's the things that they do, the actions that are undertaken, the priorities that are made and the other things that are less prioritized. We call that their presidency or their prime ministership. That's the sense that the word kingdom is used here. It's not about the place. It's about the rule and what that rule does when it comes true. And so when we see your kingdom come, we understand like Hallowed, again, hallowed be your name. His name is already holy. May it be treated as holy in the world. Then again, your kingdom come. He is already king. 
But the world is not obeying his rule. And so may his kingdom that exists come true in the world. The way that he wants to rule, the instruction for the way the world should be beautiful and well-ordered under him, may that come on earth as it is in heaven. And then again, your will be done is kind of a clarification, a restatement as far as I understand. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as you have already ordered everything in the perfect place. May it come true here. So what we do there, it's very pivotal, right? We've started the prayer, our Father in heaven, aligning our hearts to the person we're praying to. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're pretty much halfway through the prayer and we haven't got to me yet. So we haven't got to the good bit as far as I'm concerned. And that's not an accident. We are spending the priority, the first position of our prayer with our hearts set on God and on his will. It's a beautiful outworking of what Jesus says later in Matthew, where he says, but seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and everything else that you need will be added to you. In the same way, we put God first in our prayer. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you will be a bad person if you pray for yourself first and then God afterwards. It's not a strict formula like that, but it's an understanding that the most important thing in our hearts and therefore in our prayer should be God's will and way coming true. And that actually completely wipes away the idea that if you pray the right way, it will absolutely come true. Because we ought to know that our will is not always aligned with God's will. And we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Even Jesus, who had no sin, asked something of God that God wasn't going to do. He said in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was absolutely bleeding in terror, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. I don't want to die on a cross. Yet not my will, but yours be done. That is a really difficult position to take because it is an insane amount of trust and it is total self-sacrifice. It's understanding God, look, this is what I want. And I know you know I want it. And you know, I know you know why. I know you know I'm not joking, yet not my will but yours be done. Not saying, God, I know you don't want me to have any fun and that's okay. (laughs) But God, your plan will be better than anything I can imagine. And so this is what I want, yet not my will but yours be done. First and foremost, your kingdom come, hallowed be your name. And that's how we begin. Does that make sense? All right, beautiful. Now we get to the good stuff. Give us today our daily bread. Again, there's far too much to unpack in this, um, and it, it really sort of started like a bit of a fire in my brain about the way that I want to change my own prayer life. But um, there's a couple of key points. First and foremost, as I said, our petition comes in that context where first is God's holy name being reverenced and his will and kingdom coming, and then our needs. That's not attractive, That's not sexy and cool. That's not, you know, running church where we say, if you love God, life will be better than it could be anywhere else. I mean, it will, but that's not the point. First and foremost, then God, then my daily bread. Then the second thing is that give us today our daily bread. That word daily bread is the second word that is made up, is completely unique in the Greek literature from this section. 
our daily bread. And it actually took them a while to figure out what it meant because it wasn't used anywhere else. And it's this picture, this understanding of like the Israelites in the desert who received manna only for the next day. And if they tried to keep it for the day after, it would rot. And that is the most amazing picture of God saying, I will feed you, but I want you to keep looking to me for tomorrow. And for the Israelites, he didn't give them a choice. He said, no, if you try to be in control of your own destiny, if you try to lean on your stores of manna, on how good you are at collecting it, on how early you get up to get extra jars, if you try, it will rot. You can't use it. They didn't have a choice. But for us, he gives us a choice. He says, for us to pray, give us today our daily bread. And that is each and every day looking to him for our provision. Number one, it kind of implies we're praying every day. Otherwise, we'll go hungry. But B, it means we're leaning upon him. And that's a theme that comes up later as well, several times in the message, that he is our source and our provision of our daily bread each and every day. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to live paycheck to paycheck. I don't. That is stressful if you are. But there is this hard attitude that we are called to, not in a legalistic way, but this hard attitude that we are called to, that God is where I trust. God is where my food will come from tomorrow. And I'm going to put that trust on him deliberately. Give us today our daily bread. The last thing that's really important here is that we shouldn't skip asking for what we need. All of this other stuff, all of the stuff I've covered off before, is a particularly good antidote for selfishness. If our prayers are all about me and all about getting what I want, then this may be a really good reminder to put God first, to consider him first. But there are also times in my own life, and, and I'm sure people in this room, who just kind of feel uncomfortable praying for themselves because I'm so small and God's got bigger plans, right? There are people and there are times in our lives where we think my thing that I need is not that important. Surely it's below God's notice. And I want to encourage you, God is not too big to care about the small things. He is so big, he can care about every small thing without breaking a sweat. So when we come in prayer, yes, we put him first, we prioritize his kingdom, but we do not neglect bringing our needs before him because he wants us to. He is our father. He knows what we need and he is sitting on the edge of his seat waiting for us to ask him for it because he loves us. In the Bible, there are so many different times when it describes the beauty of his love. It says, if, if, if you know how, if your kid asks for a fish, you're not going to give them a snake, how much better would I be at giving gifts to my children? So I encourage you, if you struggle with feeling like you are too unimportant, I actually want to flip that around. You are too important to leave out of your prayers because you are one of the ones that Jesus died for. And he is desperate to give you your daily bread. We're almost done. Just got to make sure I can cover it all up. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Once again, I'm saying this a lot. This is phenomenally theologically rich, this line. But thankfully, Jesus then explains it in a lot more detail in the next few verses. So I'm actually not going to cover it off 
in much detail. Because I, I, I believe next week, I didn't check the roster, but I believe shortly at least we'll actually go through where Jesus expands this section in much more detail and explains what he means. So the idea of forgive us our, and I prefer the wording, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, because it, it helps us to understand it better than debts does, I think. And, and the idea of as we have also forgiven those who sin against us, that reciprocity, that forgiving other people, that is a big topic. And Jesus thinks it's so big that he then immediately after finishing the prayer explains it in a lot of detail. But one important point is to hark back to the teaching that we had right at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, right at the start of the Beatitudes, where we, taught, we were taught about blessed are the poor in spirit. That idea that coming before God with the idea that our hearts are debased, that we are morally and spiritually bankrupt, is fundamental to our right relationship with God. So if you didn't hear that one, I think it was um, Brett who preached on that uh, initially anyway, and it blew my mind. So check it out. But the idea is if we are in right relationship with God, if we are appropriately poor in spirit, then we will automatically come to him and ask for forgiveness for our sins. It doesn't mean that if we don't ask for forgiveness, he won't forgive us. It's not a formula. It's not for, ask for forgiveness first, then he will forgive you. It's that if you are penitent and he forgives the penitent, if you are penitent, you cannot help but to ask God for forgiveness and to forgive others. And so I encourage you, don't make this all of your prayer. I've had times where the only time I bother praying to God is because I'm so sorry. Please don't smite me. When I've just felt so down that that was the only prayer I felt safe praying. Don't limit it to that, but also don't leave it out. Because coming to God in that right relationship, that understanding of the bankruptcy of my heart is really important. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I love that he ends it like this. And I love that I'm going to end it like this. Thanks, Andrew. He's on it. Because we've been taken in to the narrative. We've been taken into a quiet place away from other things. Just us and God, not looking at other people, not trying to get something out of it, having a conversation with a person, setting our eyes on His will first and foremost because it's worth it and asking Him to be our provision and to love us despite our brokenness. But to wrap up, He then lifts our eyes again to look at what is in front of us as we walk out of that prayer closet, we walk out of our car, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I love that, that my faith that the Bible is so pithy and realistic. If you, you know, there, there are people who say religion's the opiate of the masses. They never properly read the Bible. <laughs> because if you read it in the spirit it was intended, if you read what Jesus had to say, you will be guaranteed that we will have difficulties, strife, temptations, suffering, that the evil one will prowl like a roaring lion and come against us. Now, that doesn't exactly sound encouraging, but the fact is we know the world is like that. So it is encouraging that God knows too and that he instructed us to turn to him to help us out. See, I firmly believe Jesus would not have told us to pray for something that God wasn't interested in giving. I believe if Jesus put, us in, put it in here, it's because God wants to do it. Lead us not into temptation 
but deliver us from evil as we walk in this life where temptation comes left, right, and center. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, don't get this twisted. The Bible says very explicitly, God will not tempt someone to sin. That's not what he does. If there's temptation to sin, it doesn't come from God. But that's not what it means when it says lead us not into temptation. It's more like if you have a loved one or a lover and you say, never leave me. So one of my chiefest joys in life, I always say the second best decision I made, the first best decision I ever made was following Jesus. The second best decision I ever made was asking Rosie Inglis to be my girlfriend just over 10 years ago. And the second greatest blessing in my life after my relationship with God is my marriage and my relationship with Rosie. And I am so pumped about that, that I, we just like, we'll be mucking around and laughing together. And I'll say, man, don't ever leave me. Let's, let's be married forever. And we're like, yeah, awesome. Let's do it. Or I'll just like ask her to marry me. And she'll say, no, sorry, I'm already married. And it's like, damn it. Oh, wait, it's me. And that's that concept that, no, I'm not expecting that person to leave, but I want them to stay. I'm not expecting God to lead me astray, but I want him to not lead me into temptation, but to guide my steps to direct me where to go that I might live this life where I am pursuing Him. I am pursuing His kingdom and His holiness. I am pursuing a holy life set apart where His work is worked forth in my life. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And there's that awesome reality, realism, understanding. There is the evil one. If you come to church and you leave feeling like there's something wrong with you because you're suffering, then we've got it wrong. Because suffering is inherent, we can't get away from it. Temptation will come. We will face trials, some of them because we follow Jesus, not despite. And so in the light of that, in the knowledge, in the understanding that there is the evil one, we turn to God and we see our deliverance. Deliver us from the evil one. I love the way we wrap this prayer up with our eyes set on the path, on going to work, on going to school, on driving on the road when people refuse not to tailgate you, on all of these things that come up in our lives. We set our hearts and eyes ahead, clear-minded, ready to go, saying, Lord, guide my steps away from temptation and towards you, Father God, and guard me from all that would come against me, from the evil one that my life will be blessed by you and that your kingdom may come. Is that good, guys? Awesome. Not like the Pharisees, not like the Gentiles. We pray to a person and we pray for his eyes only. When you pray, say, reclaiming, praying the Lord's Prayer word for word because it gives us the words to say when we don't know what to say. And really diving into this instruction that Jesus has taught us when he said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Why don't you pray with me? Father God.
a bit of a challenge preaching on prayer and then praying in public straight afterwards. God, I pray that your word would be shed forth into our hearts today, Lord. I pray that we would be encouraged and not discouraged, that we would be built up and not torn down by your word, by what I have said, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would be even more passionate to pray. We would be even more determined to seek your face because we're excited about how it works and what we get to do, not what we have to do in conversation with the Almighty God. Lord, I pray as we go into that world where temptations lie and the evil one roars, I thank you that we can pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. As this people, as this community of Jesus walks out into that world, I pray you would guide our steps, that you would deliver us from the evil one, that your kingdom, your way of doing life would leak out of us over everything around us. And that your kingdom would come in this community, in this city, in this generation, in this nation, Lord. Come true through us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.